Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello. Oh, you're exactly right, Joe. We work for the man upstairs as you do. You're setting me up quite well. You just gave me an alley-oop. The greatest revolutionary act you can commit right now is to open your mouth and speak the truth. Whether you're an academic or you're a regular guy, we have to be fearless. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach. Again, everyone, and welcome back to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, as always, joined by Joe Resinello. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach on the Veritas Catholic Network, 1350 on your AM dial, serving the New York metropolitan area. Please be sure to download the Veritas Catholic Network mobile app so that you can have access to all of our station's content. And also, please be sure to follow Joe and I on social media, primarily on Facebook and YouTube. You can find us at Frontline TV and or the Frontline with Joe and Joe. But when you see our two ugly mugs, you know that you're in the right place. Like, subscribe, share, hit the little bell, do all that fun stuff. And today, we are very pleased and honored to welcome back to the show Father Dwight Longenecker. And I don't imagine anybody in our audience does not know Father Dwight. However, I am going to give you a brief introduction, Father. Father Dwight was brought up in an evangelical home in Pennsylvania. After graduating from the fundamentalist Bob Jones University with a degree in speech and English, he went on to study theology at Oxford University. Eventually, he was ordained as an Anglican priest and served as a curate, a school chaplain in Cambridge, and a country parson on the Isle of Wight. In 1995, he and his family were received into the Catholic Church, and for 10 years, they continued to live in England, where he worked as a freelance writer and charity worker. In 2006, the door opened to return to the United States and be ordained a Catholic priest. Father Dwight now serves as pastor of Our Lady of the Rosary Church in Greenville, South Carolina. Father Dwight Longenecker, welcome back to the front line with Joe and Joe. Thank you very much, Joe and Joe, in this year of St. Joseph. So we've got two, two more Joes here. I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Father, would you lead us in prayer? That's our custom. It's always good to start with the prayer. Yeah. I'm, I'm a Benedictine oblate, so this is a prayer which is based on the prologue of St. Benedict's rule. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. We pray, Lord, that everything we do may be prompted by your inspiration so that every prayer and work of ours may begin from you and be brought by you to completion. This we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 Father, we recently came across your article in Crisis Magazine, uh, Swimming Across the Riptide, the Benedict Option uh, in Action. It really caught my eye, and, and I want to focus on, obviously, some pieces of that as we move forward with the interview. But for those who may not know, um, talk a little bit about Rod Dreher's book, uh, The Benedict Option. As you stated, you're a Benedictine oblate. You're very versed in Benedictine spirituality. Um, Talk a little bit about that. I mean, in essence, what he's basically saying is retreat, rearm, renew. Um, it's caused a lot of stir. Give give our listeners a little uh, synopsis of that book who may not know yeah. about it. Yeah, Rod, Rod Dreher, who is a friend of mine, is actually a, a, a good conservative writer. And um, he was Catholic for a time, but for personal reasons, he, he's, he's become uh, Eastern Orthodox. Anyway, be that as it may, uh, Rod has written an very interesting book drawing on the uh, experience of St. Benedict. And St. Benedict in the early 6th century uh, was um, living at the time of the collapse of the Roman Empire. And as many people know, the, the Roman Empire collapsed uh, from within uh, due to decadence, uh, immorality, uh, violence, slavery, all sorts of corruption, uh, and Benedict, as a young man, went to Rome to study, a uh, sort of college age, was disgusted with what he found there. I sometimes joke and say the college students were only interested in having frat parties and Friday night football. But um, so Benedict left, dropped out of school, and went to um, explore the monastic life, which was by this time just beginning in the church. And eventually he goes out into the hills and establishes small communities of prayer, prayer uh, communities of prayer, work, and study, uh, where maybe 12 or up to 20 men would live together, um, really in a very simple way, 
and thus the whole Benedictine monastic movement started. And from that Benedictine monastic movement, 500 years later, blossomed into what we know as Christendom, or the, the high point of uh, the church in the Middle Ages, um, in which the monasteries were a, uh, a cornerstone of Christian society, providing education, health, welfare, um, the judicial system, the university system, all of this came out of the Benedictine monasteries. So, Roger is saying, and I agree with him, and so does Benedict XVI, actually, Pope Benedict XVI um, also noticed this, and that's why he took the name Benedict, that now is the time for some new Benedicts, not necessarily withdrawing into Benedictine monasteries, although I'm pleased to say that the traditionalist um, Benedictine monasteries are, ex are experiencing a wonderful surge in vocations right now. Places like the monastery at Norcia in Italy and St. Benedict's birthplace, Clear Creek Abbey, which is in Oklahoma, and various others have a lot of young men joining. Also, the Benedictine um, convents have young women who are joining as well. But this is a call not just to, for people to rush off and join the monastery, but for all to also establish um, kind of radical uh, Christian communities, I believe, at the parish level, at the family level, at the school level, um, where we are, doing what we can with what we have where we are. I Expand on um, Benedict, if you would, Father, a, a little bit more. Father Dwight Longenecker is joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe on the Veritas Catholic Network. Father, talk about the civilizing impact that these prayer communities, these monasteries had. You, you mentioned what was going on in Rome, okay? Yeah. But outside of Rome, in Germany, or the, you know, up there, it pretty pretty barbaric, yet there was a civilizing aspect, was there not? It is, and on my um, blog website, which is DwightLongenecker.com, uh, I have a video series in that I recorded last um, winter, which is called How St. Benedict Changed the World, in which I go into the detail of this. This civilizing process happened over a period of 500 years. Basically, if you look at church history the last 2,000 years, you can, and this is a bit artificial, but you can break it up into 500-year epochs. The first 500 years is the Roman period. Uh, the second 500 years is the Dark Age between 500 and 1,000, and that's, that's when St. Benedict really gets started. And then from 1,000 to 1,500, you have the flowering of Christendom, and then from 1,500 to the present age, you have what I call the Age of Revolution, in which all of this is being overturned with um, the Reformation, with uh, the French Revolution, with modernism and liberalism and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, and we are, therefore, right at the cusp of, I believe, a new epoch. Okay, if, if I'm right, then you can split it into 500-year 500 500 epochs of God's providence. We're about at the cusp, then, of entering into a new epoch of 500 years. So very interesting to see what the Holy Spirit is doing uh, in our lifetime. You know, I mean, obviously, this is the pull between Christ's kingdom and the kingdom of the world. And, and at the root of this discussion is how to address it. How do we address it? Um, I mean, you see it in the culture war. I see you on social media as we're on social media. Um, and I, I guess the ultimate, like, question is how do we fight? How, like, we're here to be in the world and of the world. Uh, uh, you know, we're in, we're in the world, rather, but we're not of the world. But how do we effectively fight as, a, you know, a practicing Catholic, one that believes in all the teachings of the church? And that's what I want to kind of blow out in this discussion. I mean, is this the way to... I think people, I think people feel genuinely like almost helpless we shouldn't as catholics right but a lot of people feel like well where do we go we're being attacked here we're being attacked there so i i think you're exactly right father what are your thoughts on that well um in the wake of the benedict option various different books have come out um there's one book uh, which i think i forget the title of it uh by, by i think leah labrisco about how to actually put the benedict option into into effect how to make it happen um another book by a young theologian down in louisiana is called the benedict proposal and he gives a theological um background to this idea of uh living an alternative kind of christianity one which pope benedict the 16th called a creative minority uh and like I say, Rod Dreyer's book is not recommending that we all sort of move out into the country and form uh, little sort of 
Catholic Amish communities where we all, the women wear sort of hats and the men grow long beards and we all get chickens and a few pigs, okay? <laughs> um, yeah, Even though do that, that doesn't sound too bad. <laughs> yeah, go ahead and do that if you like, okay? If you, if you fresh bacon and eggs for breakfast, right? Um, but um, no, he's not recommending that we all do this, basically a retreat and head for the hills. He's saying, let's use this as a model for the kind of communities we're creating right where we are. Now, what I'm trying to do in my parish, for instance, is to create a Benedictine parish. And the hallmarks of Benedictinism, and to go back, Joe, to your point about how, the, how did the civilizing effect work, is the Benedictine life is rooted in three vows of stability, obedience, and conversion of life, and three what I call tools, which are uh, reading, study, work, and prayer. And so out of these three tools of study, work, and prayer, we construct a life which is uh, growing intellectually, spiritually, and physically. Work, physical, study, mental, prayer, spiritual. And we're focusing on the development of the whole person. And so what we're doing in our, in our parish, for instance, is building up the liturgical life uh, with traditional worship, building up the spiritual life with um, Eucharistic adoration and with prayer groups and with home groups where people are meeting in fellowship for Bible study and for, for growth. But also we're converting our, our, our traditional parish school to a classical school model using the classical curriculum to actually train our kids and provide education for our families. And this is the aspect of reading or study which is so important, which is grounding our kids in the great tradition of the of Western culture, which is, of course, a Catholic culture. You know, I'm go you know, I was gonna basically breach that subject later on in the interview, but we could talk about it now because I think you're touching on something. We interviewed uh -huh. uh, earlier, his, uh, his name is Brandon McGinley. He wrote a book called The Prodigal Church. Right. And uh, I think he makes some very keen observations. And to be honest with you, I see them as well. Catholics lack community. You see, like we have everything. We have the, the sacraments, we have confession, but there's no community. And Brandon talks about that. You know, like I look at people I know in the Protestant denominations, you were involved in, in that, you know, for many years, and they have community. You know, they, they, they not only just go to church, they have things. And I see it even by me, like people go to church, and even devout Catholics, but then they go home. Okay, let me, let, me, let, me, let me just address that because it's a very good point, okay? The thing is, Catholics used to have this in America, but it was based in their ethnicity, okay? I recognize that you guys are probably from an Italian-American background, okay? Yeah. <laughs> okay? Your fathers and grandfathers probably did have community. It was the Italian-American Catholic community, and it was very strong. And it was the Irish-American Catholic community. And there was a German-American Catholic community. And Catholics were actually known for their community at that point, but it was an ethno, it was a religious ethnic community. Now, two or three generations on, that's kind of evaporated. You guys are not so much Italian as you're, as you're American, okay? And, you, and your children will be even more so. So as this has happened and mobility has come in and people moving all over the country, that community has broken down. Now, the strength of our community in South Carolina, for instance, is that we're Catholic, but you're right. We don't have a lot of close fellowship because when I look across my congregation on a Sunday morning, <clears throat> I see Italian-Americans, uh, Irish-Americans, Native Americans, Nigerians, El Salvadorians, Indians, French people, you know, people from all over the world. That's our Catholic community now because of mobility. So we have to recreate fellowship groups within that. So we still have pockets of ethnic Catholic communities. So for instance, in South Carolina, we have a strong Vietnamese Catholic community, a strong Korean Catholic community, but the ethnic aspect is kind of disappearing. Yeah, we have the Knights, the, the old Hibernians who keep this going, you know, a little bit and so forth, but it's evaporating. What I recommend people do instead now is to look at the different Catholic spiritualities and the different Catholic um service groups to find their fellowship. So for instance, in our parish, we have a strong men's group who meet together where, the, where there is community and fellowship. Our school community with all of our parents and our, and our children is a strong community. We have a St. Vincent de Paul Society, which the people come together and minister to the needy. They have a strong fellowship and a, a strong core group. We have, a, we have a third order Franciscans who meet in the parish. They have a strong fellowship and a strong community. So 
it's these subsets within the Catholic Church where we will find the community that we're looking for, and I encourage people to search them out. I'm, uh, I'm so glad, Father, you said that because it's something that Joe and I hammer on the show all the time, and what we try to emphasize to all the people that hear our voices, we have to get it straight what our identity is. You're right. We grew up in an Italian-American first, Catholic, uh, nearly maybe Catholic either equal or second, and yeah. as Catholics in America, we need to get it straight. Our identity is in Jesus Christ and his church. That's the first thing. When people say, what are you? I'm a Roman Catholic. First and foremost, before being an American, before being a, uh, an Italian, okay, or Italian-American. And I think it's important because sometimes, it, I mean, especially now, the big buzzword out there is identity, identity, identity. But, you know, the, a lot of those identities are detached from reality. Ours is attached to reality. We are Roman Catholic disciples of Jesus Christ, and that's how we should you know, that's how I think we should move forward. Um, it, it is, but I should stress as well that for some people, the word diversity is a big scare word nowadays, okay? Because it, it's associated with leftism and with Marxism and all this kind of this stuff. It doesn't need to be. In fact, the first truly diverse community has been the Catholic Church. It's universal, okay? And when I, when I say that I, my congregation has Nigerians and El Salvadorians and English and French and Irish and Polish and whatever, I rejoice in that. This is a great thing. I love this, okay? Oh, I agree. Yeah, but the fact we do also have to um, create communities within these subsets that I'm talking about so that you're right, so would they have the fellowship that we actually need. And and we need it because here's the thing. I mean, there's the old saying, like coals. If you take a coal from the fire and isolate it, it goes out. You know, what we're facing in this world, I mean, it's rabid secularism. Right. I mean, it's always been hard to be a Catholic from the very beginning. But I mean, if you really want to live as a Catholic, I think from anywhere, from Maine to Hawaii, in, in America right now, you're open to life. You know, you it's radically different than every, and it's hard, and we need to build those communities. I think almost from a survival perspective. Yeah. I mean, I, I like honestly, I, I think that should be like if I was at the bishops conference, that's a talking point. Right, and I think I'm encouraged as a pastor when I find my lay people actually wanting to start these groups. We have so many groups starting up that I I can't handle them all. Okay. And so, for instance, we have, um, and I've also been encouraged and humbled by the fact that whenever I start to try to, to try to start something, usually it usually flops. Okay, so, but when the lay people come to me and say, "Father, can we have a study group to focus on Father Michael Gately's book about um, you know prayer or dedication to uh, the Sacred Heart of Jesus or whatever it is, some special devotion?" I say, "Yeah, sure. You know, you got my backing. Go for it." those groups always succeed. So a ladies prayer group will start up or a men's fellowship group will start up or the youth group will say, can we do this pro-life thing? Yeah, let's do that. So when all this stuff starts up and the lay people do it, it's, it actually works much better than when it's, it's, it's led from the top, from the top down. So I, I would agree with that too. I've seen that with my own eyes actually. Yeah. And priests so I, would in, I would encourage your listeners to, um, to stop complaining if they're complaining and roll up their sleeves and go to their their pastor and say, Father, can we start a home group? We'd really like to do this particular video course that we found uh, from, you know, Ascension Press or Ignatius Press and one of these groups that's providing really good resources and materials. We'd really like to do this Lent, this Lent study group. Can we get a, a home group together? If your priest says no, there's something wrong with him, okay? And I would say, just can do it anyway. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I'm glad you talked about complaining because we see it. And I'll be honest with you, you know, for a period of time, I mean, my walk, I'm 51 years old. I've been walking with the Lord as a, as a practicing Catholic since I'm 22. And I've gone in almost a full arc. I don't complain anymore because it doesn't do anything. Doesn't do, doesn't it doesn't anything. do anything. What I have learned, this is me, and I, I, I'm very interested in your, your commentary, I fast and I pray more. I vent all my aggravation that I see. And believe me, I have eyes. I know what the church teaches. I see it just as much as everybody else. Just because I'm not opening my mouth doesn't mean I don't see it. 
I think that's the answer. And this leads to what you wrote in your article. Another reason why it caught my eye. You, you mentioned a third way, living the radical Christ, uh, Christian witness. This is what you said. You said it's the apostolic way, the way of the great missionaries, the martyrs, the saints. They were in the world, not of the world. They were recognized by their holiness. Francis, Catherine of Siena, Teresa of Avila. They were renewers of the church because they were holy. Talk about that to all the people out there who are frustrated. Yeah, in this book, uh, The Benedict Proposal by this uh, young theologian that I mentioned, he gives a good analogy. He says, um, you know, the way of the world can be likened to a riptide. You know, if you're in the ocean and you have a and you're in the, a riptide catches you, it sweeps you out to the to the sea and you can do nothing about it. Okay, it's stronger than you are. He says there are three reactions to the riptide, uh, to the undertow: swimming against it, going with it, or swimming across it. Okay, and the only way that works is swimming across it. Okay, I experienced this when I took a group of high schoolers to El Salvador some years ago, and our host put us up in a beach house, and they said to us, look, it's a beautiful beach house, but you cannot go into the ocean. I said, why is that? They said, two reasons. First of all, there's sharks. That was scary enough. And then they said, but also, 100 yards out from the beach, there's an escarpment that drops out, and it creates a deadly riptide. And many people have, have been lost here on this beach because of the riptide. It's worse than the sharks. So I came home from a busy day working in the village doing a manual labor with these high school kids. And of course they said, Father, can't we please go in the sea? We're so we're so hot and sweaty. I said, Well, okay, you can go in up to your ankles, but you can't go any deeper than that. Well, you can't tell high school kids to go into the ocean up to your up to their ankles, all right? Before long, they were actually in up to their knees and their waist and they were falling in, and three of the kids got caught into the riptide. Okay. Truly scary. Praise God, one of my chaperones was an experienced surfer, and he saw what was happening. And he waded out deeply enough, deep enough and said, don't swim against it. These kids were trying to swim against the riptide to come in. He said, swim this way. Swim across the riptide. And, of course, they swam across the riptide. That, that way escaped the riptide and were able to get back to the beach. And thank God they, their lives were, were saved. But I learned firsthand, however, of this illustration about the riptide. And this is what we're doing in our battle against um, the forces of the world at the moment. <clears throat> they're very strong, they're very subtle, they're very deep, and they're, sweep they're sweeping us out. And down through history, the church has responded in those three ways. Sometimes she has responded with force. Sometimes, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say, even military force, sending soldiers in to actually root out the heretics and root out the error. Sometimes it's been with the force of the of the stance against modernism in the last century, where there were censors, where there were um, books that were banned, where everybody in seminaries had to take an oath of allegiance and had to, um, you know, or they were fired. There was a kind of element of force there and pushing against it. It doesn't work. What happens is the enemies of the church only retreat, retrench, and go deeper and go underground, and then they resurface later. Okay. The second approach is <clears throat> to go with the flow. This is the approach we're witnessing at the moment in a lot of parts of the church, where the church is saying, well, let's dialogue with the world. Let's find connecting points. Let's try to appease them and satisfy their complaints and go, go with what, listen, listen deeply to what their concerns are. That doesn't work either, because that way the faith is weakened, okay? And that's like going with the riptide and being swept out to sea. Instead, we need to swim across the riptide by establishing these communities and small fellowship groups where we keep the faith, where we encourage one another, and we set a radiant example to the world of something which is different, a different way of living. I agree with that. The radiant, the radiant example in what you just said really, really stood out, Father, because I think that's, that's, I think, the important thing for people to remember, in my opinion, because to retreat if let's say you were behind the walls, you to 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 put it that way, um, well then other people are not seeing your 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 radical um, let's say uh, uh, devotion to Jesus Christ right. and, the, and the church. Let me and give you that's not doing much good either, is it, Father? No, it, not not a total retreat. We're not talking about a total retreat. We're talking about living lives in the world that are radically different. Let me give you an example from the pro life the pro life battle. Okay, please. By all means, go on the pro-life march. By all means, 
uh, pray outside the abortion clinics. By all means, work for legislation to ban abortion. That's the head-on battle. All that stuff is important. I'm not denying that, okay? I'm not saying that's worthless, but I, what I am saying is what really gives an example is when you come to a parish like like uh, ours in South Carolina, where we've attracted a lot of young families and a lot of what we call faithful families. In other words, they have five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten kids. Okay? I believe now, when you come to a parish like that, and after Sunday Mass, the moms and dads are all out in the courtyard talking and sharing coffee, and the kids are running around and playing games and having fun together, and they all come to the parish school. Young people come to a parish like that, and they say, that's what I want. I do not want to be out on the party scene every Friday night for the rest of my life, taking drugs and sleeping around. I actually want what those people have, okay? Now, that is a very powerful pro-life witness. And when some of those people are also adopting um you know, kids from low-income families where their parents can't cope, where maybe the single mom has to give them up for adoption, that's pro-life. That's a lifetime pro-life commitment. And in my parish, I'm not bragging about my, my, my parish or about me. I'm bragging about my, my people. We have three or four or five families who have actually taken that step of adopting disabled kids, kids from ethnic minorities, kids from low-income families. And I can tell you, watching those kids grow up, it does not always have a happy ending. Sometimes those those adoptive relationships, and I'm not down on adoptive relationships, don't get me wrong, but sometimes they're a real challenge for the families, okay? Uh, as the kids grow up, there's all sorts of things which they have to deal with, um, and they deal with it bravely, and that is a real pro-life witness. When that happens, boy, that's the kind of witness I'm talking about which changes people and is really attractive. See, that's the apostolic way. You see, if you ask me, that speaks so loud. You yep. see, that's what it means if you ask me to be Catholic. People, it stops people in their tracks, even people who are enemies of the church, because it was like Mother Teresa. I've witnessed this because I was very close with them. I've witnessed this with my own eyes. Right. They would stop people in their tracks because what they were doing, it wasn't human. Right. It, it goes against your nature to do something like that. And here's another thing. It costs you. It does. It's costly. And um, one of the one of the aspects that's going on here is in, in our particular parish is it costs the parish too. Okay. My headmaster of my school, for instance, and I sat down and said, how are we going to attract these families and keep these families? And so we've established something called Faithful Family Scholarship. And it's real simple. If you're a member of our parish um, and you want your kids in our school, you pay the tuition for the two oldest and all the rest come free. Amen. Okay? Awesome. So, so, you know, if you have eight kids, that's very, and you're Catholic and you're looking for Catholic education, that's very attractive. You're not going to be able to do that in New Jersey, Father. <laughs> right now. It's tough. You got eight kids, you're paying the freight for all eight. Um, yeah. Well, that's the other thing is uh, the pro life witness has to take place not only in our hearts and in our wallets, but also uh, between our legs. Okay? Oh, I, without a doubt. Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, I'll be honest, I'll speak for myself. I mean, I'm expecting my fifth child. And I live in a very small home. I mean, you, it's not, you, you, you or your wife? Well, my wife. Yeah. Okay. But I'm well, in. It. I'm in the home. I mean, like, like. Well, why don't you move to Greenville, Joe? Because you may have to, Father. To be yeah. honest with you, because taxes are expensive. Well, the taxes are low here. The gas prices are low here, and the and the house prices are low here. So come down here and get a nice big house for your kids. And I also, what's it called? We'd send our kids to Catholic school and. They have three kids you pay for. They give you a little discount, then the rest are free. But we pay $10,000 a year in taxes on a little house. And you're paying for Catholic schools, so you're killing yourself. And that's what, I mean, that's real. I mean, that's across the country, real. If you, ch if you check out an article in the National Catholic Register called Relocatio, it, our parish has been written up recently because of this. We have people moving from all over the country to actually be here and be part of what's happening. Because That's wonderful. Um, and we cool. hope that this is going to generate some enthusiasm and other pastors might actually take the courageous step of saying, we're going to support our school. We're going to have a faithful family discount. Uh, you pay for two kids and the rest come free because our school needs to be filled up and we need to have the kids educated in the Catholic faith. Excellent. Father, we're going to take a little bit of a break, okay, because we want to come back. We have more to talk about with Father Dwight Longenecker, and we're talking about um, his most uh, recent article, Swimming Across the Riptide, the Benedict 
option in action. We want to talk about courage and other things on the other side of the break. You're listening to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Joe Facillo and Joe Resinello, way in the breach with Father Dwight on the Veritas Catholic Network, 1350 on your AM dial, serving the New York metropolitan area. Please be sure to follow Joe and I on Facebook and YouTube and wherever you find us on social media. And don't go away. We're coming right back. Hey, you know about our Veritas shows, right? All five? It starts every Sunday at 5 p.m. with The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Their guests include the biggest names in the Catholic world, and Joe and Joe talk to them from the perspective of the everyday Catholic. Every Wednesday at noon, you can catch Let Me Be Frank. This is your chance to hear Bishop Frank Caggiano talk about spirituality, church news, and fun stories from his Brooklyn childhood and his life. Thursday nights at 8 o'clock. That's when you can hear It's Not That Late with Liv Harrison. It's a late night show on Catholic Radio, and Liv mixes faith with humor, games, and dynamic interviews. There's a double dose of shows on Friday. First, at noon, it's Restless. It's four millennials talking about, well, life as millennials in today's crazy world. Yes, it's possible to be young and Catholic. Then, at 12.30 on Fridays, you can hear the focus on Veritas, where Peter Sonsky puts the focus on good works and the good people doing those works. Those are the five Veritas shows, and there's more on the way. Stay up to date at VeritasCatholic.com or on the mobile app. Welcome back, everyone, to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, as always, joined by Joe Resinello, way in the breach with Father Dwight Longenecker. And we are talking about an article that he recently wrote in Crisis Magazine, Swimming Across the Riptide, the Benedict Option in Action. It is a fascinating, informative conversation that all Catholics need to hear. So with that, I'm going to hand it over to Joe Resinello because we want to talk about courage because that's what we need. Archbishop Chaput has written extensively on this uh, in a particular book entitled uh, Strangers in a Strange Land, Living the Catholic Faith in a Post-Christian World. This is what he had to say. We don't need more resources to renew the church in the United States. We need more courage. And that begins with the honesty to live what we claim to believe as Catholics, whether public opinion approves of it or not. I want to talk to you about that statement, Father, because I believe that that courage is rooted in prayer. My parish at home, one thing I love about it is it has adoration three days a week from one o'clock to 11 o'clock at night. And I believe that that transforms a community. Prayer basically, obviously draws us closer to God and courage is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Talk about that statement and the need for basically courage. Yeah, it takes courage and it takes self-discipline to pray. And I'm I'm amazed sometimes when uh, something happens, which is a good thing, which takes place in my life or my family or my parish. And then I think back and I say, oh yeah, I prayed about that. In other words, there's been an answer to prayer, even though (laughs) I kind of forgot about it. Um, And so praying regularly and praying consistently and praying together is actually, does actually make a huge difference because it brings renewal to our lives, our families, our parishes, and and to our land. And although there's a lot of bad stuff happening in our country and in our church at the moment, um, I would encourage people to also look at all the good stuff that's happening. There is actually a wonderful um, movement of renewal. I can tell you, when I moved back here from the from the United Kingdom about 15 years ago, I was actually amazed and greatly heartened by the um, vigor of Catholic life in America. The number of people who had an entrepreneurial spirit, who, like you guys, have started a radio program, got busy on social media, started publishing houses, started schools, started universities, started colleges, and the amount of generosity of people who are willing to fund these enterprises and really make them go. Compared to the UK and the Catholic Church and the rest of Europe, America is alive, and America and the and the strength and the vigor of American Catholicism is rooted very largely in the work of the laity. This is um, actually the, the Vatican II, the best thing of Vatican II coming coming alive in the church today. The laity actually getting on and doing their job, like you guys, being faithful Catholics. I so, think one of the I think one of the things, Father, uh, that I see, or it's just an opinion, is that I think uh, there might this renewal might be. I know in my personal life, and some people I know is, we've seen the the let's call it the abyss 
of the 80s, the 90s, in other words, the, the aftermath of the sexual revolution of the 1960s, um, participation in that sexual revolution of the 1960s. I'll be you know, full confession here. Um, it's dark, it's empty, it's a lie, it's a false promise. And then people say, I need to get back on the right track. And this is just, again, my opinion, very anecdotal. I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing this renewal because it's almost like a been there, done that type thing. We don't want that. We want God. You know, I think. I think. Also, one of the problems in the church, and you know, there's a lot of yak, yak, yak about blaming the clergy and blaming the bishops and blaming the hierarchy and blaming them for not giving leadership and not being the bishops they should be. Okay, we're all human. We're all. Uh, we all have our faults and our frailties, and that's understandable. But you know, one of the biggest problems in the Catholic Church today is the number of lapsed Catholics. The largest religious denomination, second largest religious denomination in America, apparently, statistically, are lapsed Catholics. So, I would buy that. Yeah, so the problem, folks, it's not just in the pulpit, it's in the pews as well, okay? A large number of people who call themselves Catholics who are unfaithful Catholics, who are leaving the church for Protestant denominations or just for the golf course, who have not practiced the faith, who have not been taught the faith, and who have not sought out to try to understand the faith either. So speaking as a priest, if, if people are throwing stones in our direction, I'm going to throw a few back, okay? Well, no, but what I think it is, because this is even like in my own neighborhood, I mean, I live in, you know, Southern Burton County, New Jersey, outside of New York City. Everyone's Catholic, baptized, that is. They are. I mean, yeah. straight up. Yeah, yeah. They don't go to church because they don't see the utility in it. See, right. I mean, I went to Catholic high school. We went to like prep schools and like Joe and I, and I know the deal. But people don't send their kids to those schools to make them holy. They send their kids to those schools so they get into good colleges and make money. That's the truth. Right. They don't see the utility. And I think what people have to see is authentic Catholicism. That is what opens my eyes. I mean, I was raised Catholic. I went to church. My parents took me to church. But until I saw, say, the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal, the Missionaries of Charity, <laughs> the Sisters of Life, people who were gifted people who were alive in the faith, I said, this is what the Catholic Church is. I want that. Like yeah. you said, Father, that's what people have to see. I want to tell you a little story about that. Please. Sure. When I lived in England, I was uh, ran my own business and a business partner who was a lapsed Catholic. This and this young woman had left the faith, and but she was still interested in spirituality. She was exploring Eastern religions, right? So we were on the uh, underground train in London, going going to a business meeting, and um, these two uh, Harry Krishna monks came in with their you know their their orange robes and their begging bowls and all the rest and they got under the tube train and my business partner whose name was jerry she said look at that she said we catholics need more people like that i said we have our own i said but maybe you don't see them right now well the next underground train stop the train pulls into the station and stops these Hare krishnas get off the train and who should step into the train but two mother Teresa nuns love it Okay, and they sat down opposite us, and I gave her an elbow in the room. Says, "Look, there's two of ours." She said, <laughs> "Yeah." Well, later on in the afternoon, after our business meeting, we're on the tube train again, going back across London. The doors open up. Who steps in? But one of the uh, Franciscan missionaries of renewal. Well, there great, it is. Great big guy with a beard down to his chest. You know the whole shtick. With oh, the, yeah. With, oh yeah, I know with, him well. With, with the rope and everything, he comes in and he stands there. I said to him, "Where are you from?" He said, "Kansas." I said, so what are you doing over here in London? He said, mostly I just stand around. He's over six foot tall, you know? So I went back and sit next to my friend and I said, look, I said, there's another one of ours. I said, we're ahead three to two. Uh, well, there it is. I, I mean, it. God provides. Anyway, I mean, anyway, the end of the story is she came back to the church and had her baby baptized. Well, that's, that's it. People have to see, and this is what Benedict the 16th, before he was Benedict the 16th, he, he uses this term, uh, what is it? Uh, a creative minority. Right. He basically mm -hmm. said, and I actually think it's very prophetic. We've referenced it on our show no, a number of times. In 1969, he gave a radio address and he basically said, the church will become small. It will become poor. It will be stripped of its honor. And from that creative minority, a light will shine bright to the rest of the world and people will say i want what these people have and i actually believe that that is 
to a degree happening as we speak, the remnant of people, because the world is getting dark. It really is. Father, I see it, and it saddens me sometimes. It is, and it's frightening, but we have to be careful with this remnant that we do not become an angry remnant, okay? You're right. Okay, we have to remain strong in faith, strong in prayer, and strong in joy. Uh, The sociologist... um, I forget his name, I think Rodney Starkey or Rodney Stark. Anyway, he wrote this book about the fall of the Roman Empire or the rise of Christianity. And he said, historically, the Roman Empire was a cruel, heartless, bloodthirsty, dark place to live. Everyone thinks of the Roman Empire as this great sort of civilization. It was a great civilization, but it was rooted in the bloodthirsty cruelty Uh, of the Roman overlords. Their armies were harsh. Also, culture was riven with immorality, abortion, infanticide, um, violence, bloodshed, murder. The, the, The society was ravaged by plague, by famine, and it collapsed from within. But he said within that, by the time Christianity was made the Roman, the, the religion of the Roman empire in the early four, three hundreds, the statistics seem to show that over 50% of the population in the major Roman cities were already Christian. In other words, they had been converted by Christians who were just doing what Christians are supposed to do. They were loving their husbands and their wives. They were valuing their children. They were rescuing the children who'd been thrown on the trash heaps for infanticide. They were ministering to the plague victims rather than running away. They were actually living the faith. And they were the creative minority then, 2,000 years ago, and we are in a similar position now. What's what's important, Father, <clears throat> excuse me, and you're at the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo, Joe Resinello. Great conversation with Father Dwight Longenecker, and we are discussing his recent article in Crisis Magazine, Swimming Across the Riptide, the Benedict Option in America. What I think is so important, Father, and I try to emphasize to people, you ever go to a movie and it takes place in a certain historical time or a certain point in history, and you say, wow, were those times really just all like that? And there's, the reason why I bring that up is if you look at the news, Joe and I, Joe mentioned he gets sad. We both get depressed when we put together the stories for our social media show because it's like, really, all this is happening? But underneath it, and the reason why I bring it up, Father, is we have to remember, that's like you were describing in Rome. Just because what was going on in Rome is what, is what you, you know on the surface, but underneath it all, like you said, there's in all the provinces and in, in all the major cities, they're already Christian. And we have to remember that in America, it seems like the whole place is burning down around us, not in Greenville, South Carolina, not in a lot of places, not on the front steps of, of churches that Joe and I on the first Saturdays in a month with other Catholic men pray the rosary, not there. It's not, it's not all burning down. There's a yeah. lot of hope out there. Remember folks, the headlines are, are, are fluff. The headlines are, are devised to make you click and read the headlines and go further and spend more time so that you see the advertising that's on those websites, okay? I'm not going to talk about news headlines because nobody reads newspapers anymore, okay? Mm -hmm. But they go online and those headlines are written in order to attract you by the bad news to get you to stay there to see the advertising which they're putting up. Get real, get local, like you say, see what's happening in your local church, in your local community, roll your sleeves up, do what you can where you are with what you have, and the church will be renewed from within and from the grassroots level. But it will be this 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 creative minority that you're talking about. I, amen, and I agree with you. And I'll be honest, when I read your article, this was the part that caught my eye, and I want you to expand on it because I think it's very important. I have not heard anyone say this like this, If and I'm not just saying that because we're speaking to you, and this is what... The reason why, to be honest with you, I reached out to you. You said this, the pro- and this is about the creative minority. The problem is that too often the new ecclesiastical communities are victims of all idealistic enterprises. Corruption creeps in. Self-righteousness and spiritual superiority can infect the community, and their very unusualness becomes their worst enemy. The danger is that of weirdness. They are so heavenly-minded that they're no no earthly good. A more down-to-earth and ordinary way is for the local parish to become the creative minority that Pope Benedict calls for. You see, I agree with that. I have seen that. The Pharisees show up in, in a lot of these things. I can remember, and I'll tell you a story, in the beginning of this, 
Father Lewis Leonelli, who's a CFR, encouraged us to do this. And, and I remember making a comment to a guy who was helping us produce. I said, we'll do it. I don't need you, basically. And he said to me straight out, Joe, that is arrogance. And there is nowhere that Christ is present in arrogance. And I see that on social media. There's just arrogance. Like, like Christ is not present in arrogance. Christ is present, you know, he has it all. We have nothing. And to be honest with you, people speak like they have it all and they have it all figured out when they're just as flawed as everybody else. Talk about it. Right. I would recommend to you um, my recent book, Immortal Combat, um, Confronting the Heart of Darkness, because I approach some of these things and explain the dynamics behind this. But you're absolutely right. One of the things that religious people fall prey to, of course, is self-righteousness, which is I call the unforgivable sin, because if you're self-righteous, you don't think there's anything to repent of. And therefore, you can't be forgiven if you can't repent, okay? So, and religious organizations, and we've seen this now with some of the ecclesial movements that were started with great fervor, like in the in the 60s and 70s and 80s, um, the legionnaires and so forth, and, and some of the other new ecclesial communities. They did the retreat thing where they withdrew completely, and they followed a charismatic leader who turned out to be maybe be a sex abuser and so forth. And there was financial corruption. There was spiritual self-righteousness. And these new ecclesial communities can lend themselves to that kind of mentality and attract those kind of people to join them, whereas a parish, a normal parish, is much more down-to-earth. A normal parish should be like a family where you can't necessarily jo uh, choose your family members. I can remember one guy talking about his kids being a problem. He said, I chose my wife, but I couldn't choose my kids. They were just given to me by God. Okay. It's a bit like that with a, with a parish as well. You can't choose everybody who's going to be there. Some of them are going to be a pain in the neck. Some of them are going to be very holy. Some of them are going to be actually very down to earth and very practical. It's a nice mixture and it's a very practical and down to earth mixture. That's why, although the, the Lord is given me a speaking and a writing ministry. It's my work as a parish priest that I value the most because that keeps my feet on the ground. But there I'm working with real people, with real problems, everyday life and death situations, you know? But you're talking about, if you ask me, accompaniment. You see, the proper way, the way I view it, because I've seen this with the missionaries of charity, because they work with the, the worst many times, is they don't bend in terms of their beliefs, but they walk with people and give the example. And that's what a family does. Like you can't, and I've learned this because I'm thick in the head. You can't change people. You can't change people. They have to change themselves, but you can love them. Right. And you that doesn't mean I agree with them, but I have to love them. You can set an example. I can, I can remember on the line of this accompaniment, uh, one of the missionaries of charity who came to our, our our town to help with the mission said that his work with the poor was that he didn't give them anything, but instead he invited them in to, to share what he has. And he said, if he invited them, he knew that if he invited them into the, um, you know, into the convent to share his lunch, that the lunch he was having was actually as simple as the lunch they would have got in the soup kitchen. Therefore, he was happy to share with them a crust of bread and a bowl of soup because that's all he was having. So therefore, to accompany really means in many ways, if you can and you have that charism, to walk with them right where they are, not necessarily to invite them to something else. I think it's important because the word accompaniment gets thrown around a lot, particularly in Catholic circles, and it gets, you know, it's like uh, some people some people uh, say, well, that's all we hear about. Other, I, I don't think people look like look at it the way you you, you, you both are describing to walk with someone because we've been walked with. See, that's that's one thing I like. I've been walked with by, let's say, a good priest, a right. good a good religious sister who admonishes me as a sinner and but helps me along the way. I think we have to remember that that word gets gets misused many many times. So, sometimes accompany sometimes accompaniment is is really just another word for this the second of those three options I was talking about, which is accommodation which is giving in and going with the flow. Mm. And th that just weakens the faith. So it's not really doing much good. And let's talk a little bit about, you talk about like some of these communities, they lose focus because they they almost become like, like I see, it's almost like pharisaical. And I, I think to myself of how, I, I've learned this as a father, how weak I am, how I could easily, easily fall and do. And 
like God is patient with us infinitely. You're a dad. And I, there, I could think of times with my father, God rest his soul, how he didn't kill me <laughs> in plain English, kill me. And I look back at it because he saw the end product. He didn't just crush me. And we, maybe we've gotten a little further, but that doesn't mean you crush somebody. And I, I took to that for many years and I'm, I'm learning that we have to walk with people. We have to love them. It's not about winning an argument. It's about loving them. Talk a please about that. Cause I think I don't see it. I'd give a mention also about um, this, the difficulty with the the lapsed Catholics and the cultural Catholics, um, because it, it touches on what you've said. Um, you see, I'm a convert. I grew up in an evangelical faith and became a Catholic you know, when I was an adult after reading and study and prayer. And what I notice amongst a lot of the cultural Catholics with respect to you guys as Italian Americans being brought up in that community is that an awful lot of them are more Italian than they are Catholic. Okay. Uh, They're more Polish than they are Catholic. And while I respect their ethnicity and their culture and their customs, and I admire it, um, it's not the same thing as their Catholicism. And so, Um, we need to be able to also understand where they are and where they're coming from and help them to understand by trying to get into their shoes somehow or other to share with them this, that their Catholicism is actually more important than the fact that their grandfather was Polish. Mm. Um, And to be able to really grab grab hold of what you've said with a real vital faith, a life of prayer, a life which is always exploring and learning more about the faith and trying to study more and learn more uh, and pray more to be able to walk in that path that you've been you've been describing. I mean, one one thing I've learned, and like as far as like again, I was always Catholic, and I think this is where you talk about utility. I see young couples; they have kids. They don't bring their kids to church. Why? Because they don't see utility in it. They'll break your. They'll bring their kids to Little League. They want their kids to learn a second language. They want their kids to go to get a high SAT score, but they don't see the utility. And one thing I have learned, and and you're 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 a priest, and you know this. I can't be who I want to be without the sacraments. I simply can't. I know who I am, Father. Trust me. I know who I am. People have to rediscover that, that the sacraments are the medicine for the world. Indeed. And in fact, I think a lot of, a lot of Catholics uh, go through the motions, they fulfill their obligations, but nobody has ever helped them to understand that the Catholics, that the sacraments actually do what we say that they're supposed to do. Um, the healing ministry of the church, the forgiving ministry of the church, the reconciling ministry of the church, uh, the life-giving sacraments which we have are very often treated as a routine to go through, a custom to go through. Someone has coined the phrase and said, we're sacramentalized, but we're not evangelized. Uh, And one of the things I try to share with my people, and I think it's so important for Catholics to hear, is that um, the sacrament of confession really does not only forgive you of your sins, but it grants, grants you the grace to overcome those sins. The sacrament of anointing and laying on of hands really will give you Christ's healing. Somewhat uh, sometimes real physical healing and miraculous healing, but always some sort of healing in your life, healing of your emotions, healing of your relationships, healings of your inner, your inner wounds, uh, healings of your, your family hurts. Uh, the sacraments of the church really work. When we go to the, to, to the Eucharist and receive communion in a state of grace, we really do have communion, union with Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Uh, he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me, I will remain in you. This is a reality. It's not just a form of words. It's not just, you know, a a manner of speaking. It's not just a symbol, for goodness sake. It's a reality that when you come, you have union with Jesus Christ. He is infused into your life and into your soul for your transformation. And if you stay on the path, you will be transformed from the inside out. Yeah. This is what the faith is all about. There's no doubt about that. It's not, it's not just a matter of going through the routine and sending your kids to Catholic school, like you say, to get good grades. Um, it's, it's a fact of all of us living this truth together as if we really believe it, because it is true. And I've seen the transformation in people's lives. I've seen the transformation in my life, God, you know, God willing, step by step, despite my frailties. Um, and this is something I feel very passionate about. 
The Catholics need to understand the great treasures that we have, that God really does work through the sacrament of the Church and through the sacraments of the Church as they are administered validly through a believing priest and through the, the, the ministry of Christ's Church. Father, we talked earlier in the conversation, and for those of you who are just joining us, you're at the front line with Joe and Joe on the Veritas Catholic Network. Joe and Joe are having a fantastic conversation with Father Dwight Longenecker. Father, we talked earlier about complaining, and we only have about, we have about five minutes left or so. People love to complain, Father. They, I mean, I'm sure you hear it. Um, you know, Joe and I, if one thing, we're loud, but we're not complainers. We actually try to encourage people, encourage men in particular, uh, but we encourage people to uh, to stop complaining, stop pointing the finger at others, all right? Start looking to yourself and 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 get out there. Go ahead, Father, you were going to say yeah, something. One of, the, one of the things, yeah, I get this all the time, and sometimes I, I get um, burdened with people who are latching onto conspiracy theories, for instance, which is a way of complaining, okay? And one of the things I say, which really makes them mad, is I, I listen and I say, well, what are you going to do about that, okay? In other words, uh, if you're complaining about the hierarchy or the priests or the bishops or the pope or the president or whoever it is you're complaining about, then that's a way of shifting blame, okay? And, and I say, what are you going to do about that? It makes them mad because, you know, I'm being cocky, I guess, and I, you know, I'm sorry, that's one of my faults. But um, the point is, if you can do something about it, then get on and do something about it, okay? If you can't, then stop complaining and roll up your sleeves and do what you can do with what you have where you are. Okay. I, I agree. Father, I think on the, on, on the sneak, you've been watching the front line with Joe and Joe, because we, we, we say on the show all the time, we quote Sean Connery from the movie, the untouchables, when he says to Kevin Costner, he says, what are you prepared to do? Yeah. We're being serious, not just quoting a movie. What are you prepared to do? And that leads me into the question I was going to ask in about the last three minutes that we have together here. Um, the need, all right. If you're going to complain about things, what are you prepared to do? Talk about the need, please, for sacrifice. See, we complain right. about Hollywood movies are, are terrible and this, that. You're taking your kid to, you're putting money in their pockets. or That's just one example. But the need to sacrifice things, put things down, and get back to important things. Talk about sacrifice, Father, and the need for it. Right. The sacrifice begins in the home, I believe with the sacrifices that we make within our marriages, the sacrifices we make with our kids, the sacrifices we make in our parish. I have a new book coming out next month, which is called Beheading Hydra, a radical plan for Christians in an atheistic age, which addresses these things. And one of the things which I put in there is a chapter on how do you address materialism? Materialism is the belief that only the stuff that you see in this world is going to satisfy you. And what I say is, what about tithing? If you actually tithe of your income, that's a direct way of you correcting materialism. Material, materialism is trusting only in material things. So why don't you tithe and actually give 10% of your income? Whoa. And I say at the beginning of that chapter, this chapter is not going to make you happy. Okay. <laughs> but um, that's a witness though. That's, that's a witness. And one of the reasons, and I'll share this really quickly because I know our time is short. One of the reasons I believe I am still a Christian believer today is because my dad, as a Christian businessman with five kids and a double mortgage on the house and a business that was failing, he still tithed 15% of his income to the Lord's work. I saw that in my dad's life, and I said, my dad puts his money where his mouth is, literally. Okay, I agree, and okay? that's the greatest homily you heard. Yep. It was that witness. You see, it's about witness. The creative minority is a witness fueled right. and grounded in prayer and the sacraments. And if you ask me, that's how we change the church and change the world. And I tell my people in the, in the pew when I preach on this, I say, look, I'm not telling you this because I want your money. Give your money to the bishop or give your money to the mother missionaries of charity. Whoever you give it to, just give it, okay? And give it to the Lord's work and make sure it's a good Catholic work, but get on and do it. You should tithe to your parish, of course. We're grateful for that, but I'm not here because I, because Father Longenecker wants your money, okay? I'm not a televangelist saying, give me $20, okay, and you'll be prosperous. I'm just telling you, tithe for your own sake, for the sake of your family, for the sake of the church, for the sake of the faith not for utilitarian purpose because the church needs a new roof or because father needs to have, you know, pay off the, the, the church hall or something, mm -hmm. give it because it's for your spirituality and for your witness in the world. And I say this, those who have been given much, much is expected. I say it all the time, but it also creates detachment. We are in this world. We are not of this world. Father, if you would, some final thoughts. It was a great conversation. We really appreciate you having here. We have about a minute. Final thoughts and where the people out there listening to us at the Veritas Catholic Network could know more about you, find more of your, your articles, and when your book is coming out. 
Yeah. Um, it's easiest to go to my website, DwightLongenecker.com. I blog there regularly, and I also post some of my archived articles. There's video content. There's podcast content. And uh, also, if they want to follow me on social media, I'm Twitter. I'm on Twitter. I pulled back from Facebook a few months ago, but because um, I have too many commitments. But they're very welcome to join me there. And the new book comes out in August: um, Beheading Hydra, uh, a radical plan for Christians in a in an atheistic age. Do you know where that's going to be available now, or you have to wait for them? Um, middle of August, I think they've said. Yeah. Okay, All it's right. in the pipe. It's in the pipeline. All right. Awesome. Father Dwight Longenecker, thank you so much again for joining us at the front line. With thank, Joe. Thanks for your good work and God bless all your listeners. Thank you very much. And thank you everybody out there at the brothers and sisters at the Veritas Catholic Network for joining us at the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo, Joe Resinello, 1350 on your AM dial, serving the New York metropolitan area, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith. Remember to download the Veritas Catholic Network mobile app so that you get access to all of our station's content. And until they shut us down, of course, follow us for now on Facebook, YouTube, and wherever you find us on social media. Hit a little click. I promise it'll help us out in some way, shape, or form to get the message out there. And in the meantime, remember that until the next time, our conversation is your conversation. And that conversation is going on everywhere. We'll talk to you soon.